Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so what happens when our dogs decide that agility equipment is better than anything else we've got? So when our dogs decide that the hottest reinforcer in town is the game itself and no longer our toys or our food, this happens. I see it any given weekend at trials um, and I deal with it in seminars too. Dogs decide that... (laughs) Sorry, I just had a little dog conversation on the floor. Um, dogs decide that they want the game more than they want to listen to you or interact with your reinforcers, etc. And it's very dangerous. It's not a good thing. Um, and the reason it's not a good thing, and I want my dogs to love agility, and I my dogs do love agility. Um, in fact, Felix was over the course of like 20 runs last weekend at least I don't e- I didn't even count them um dragging me like wanted to drag me to the ring none of my dogs are allowed to pull on leash it's kind of a big deal for me with my orthopedic issues but and he never pulls but he wanted he was trying to pull me into the ring um my dogs love agility but they love their reinforcers more and it's important to me that they continue to love their reinforcers more because I have control over their reinforcers. I don't have control over the tunnel. I cannot confiscate the tunnel or provide the tunnel as easily as I can a toy or a cookie. So why does this happen? Well, it happens with maybe poor or inconsistent use of positive reinforcement. So maybe we are not clear with our reinforcers. The dog doesn't understand why they're earning their reinforcers. And so they go for what is most clear. And we in the sport of agility tend to work really, really hard on clarity surrounding our handling and our communication inside the ring. And so then the dogs kind of glom onto that. They want that, they want that clarity. And that has to do with the equipment reinforcers and not so much our toys or our food because we fling toys and food without using markers, without using clear communication. Um, and it's almost just a surprise and the dog you know, isn't sure when they get it and when they don't. Never mind the fact that we involve a lot of conflict in our toy play a lot of the time, but that's really for another episode. Also, the use of negative reinforcement. The use of negative reinforcement actually abounds in the sport of dog agility. Um, People just don't realize that they're doing it. Negative reinforcement is defined by behavior building by the removal of something. So we grow behaviors by ceasing um, a a certain stimulus. Here's where I see this happening. You send the dog for the weave poles until they get it right. When they finally get it right, you let them continue on. That's negative reinforcement because you have stopped insisting that they weave. They finally got it right. Same thing with any other other thing that you just send the dog for until they get it right. So if you continue to try a sequence, continue to try a sequence without providing reinforcement, um, like food or toys, 
until the dog gets it right, and then you finally let up and stop sending them, you're actually employing negative reinforcement even if you give a toy after they finally got those weave poles. And so what you're doing is building the power again into the equipment because they are allowed to continue on into the course and you have woven relief into that feeling. Relief of you've stopped nagging them, you've stopped asking them to do this thing that's hard for them and so then they get to go run the course and they experience that relief. The other problem that people run into is that agility is the most fun or the only fun in their dog's lives. It's very, very important to me that if I never did agility again, my dogs would still have really excellent lives and they'd be very fulfilled and happy and wouldn't miss it for a second. That's important to me. It doesn't have to be important to you, but what does need to be important to you is that your dog does get to have fun sometimes other than agility. And why that should be important is again, so that you can maintain control over the reinforcers that you need to use. If agility is the most fun thing in their life, then they don't care about you and your reinforcers. They just care about getting to access their fun game. And you can build that, you can build that pretty quick by not allowing any off-leash time other than in the ring, by not being playful and silly with your dog other times outside of agility, by isolating your dog or restricting their movement too much other than when they're doing agility. So if your dog is in a crate for eight hours while you're at work, and then you come home, you know, four nights a week and don't do much with them. But on that one agility class night, they get to go and actually have a good time. You're writing the recipe for the dog to like agility more than they like you or your reinforcers. So how do we avoid this? Well, you teach positive reinforcement procedures. So actually teach reinforcement strategies and procedures rather than just flinging toys and food. So ritualize your reinforcement. Teach your dog specific markers to do with their toys in particular. If you'd like to use one marker only, that's fine, but I do recommend using one for toys and one for food. Use it consistently and use it cleanly, meaning you mark and then produce the reinforcer rather than kind of doing that sloppily all at once. Try to train with positive reinforcement, not negative reinforcement. That means that you set them up to be right and you pay them for being right rather than they're wrong and you just keep sending them until they get it right. That's culturally what we're doing in agility. I watch it again and again. It's basically how everybody trains. And when I say everybody understand that I know that's a gross generalization and I know there's a lot of people doing a much better job than that. But culturally, we tend to just send them for the challenge until they get it right. And because we've jacked them up to the ceiling and they want to play this game so bad, they keep doing it for us. It doesn't mean it's a good way to train. It doesn't mean it's a good idea. So train them instead by splitting, by setting them up for challenges that they are capable of doing and not setting them up for challenges that you're not sure how they're, how they're going to do. And if they fail, fine, try it again. But my limit is two failures in a row. My dog fails twice. They have told me. They told me the first time. I'm not sure. And then they told me the second time, and I don't know how to fix it, right? So the first time they said... Um, the, you know, they told me there was a gap in their understanding. By withholding reinforcement, I hope that they can fill that gap. If they don't, 
then I need to fill that gap with teaching, not by continuing to send them and frustrate them. So think like that. Think that you should be having a very high success rate in every training session. And I know that pushing for excellence and also striving for a high success rate is not that easy to do. But the good news is there's some really great trainers coming around um, online and everywhere else who understand this and who are pushing for it. And there's a cultural shift I think taking place, I hope is taking place. Behavioral wellness, take your dog on a hike, you guys, take them on an off-leash run. If your dog never has any off-leash time, except for in the agility ring, that is a recipe for disaster in many ways. You can either have a dog become addicted to the equipment and addicted to agility, or you get a dog that gets in there and does zoomies. A classic example is a sighthound that, you know, people don't believe sighthounds can be off-leash. And so then they step into the agility ring and this is the biggest space the dog ever experiences without a leash attached to its neck. And it just runs laps because its body is never allowed to actually run, which is what its body is built for. So pay attention to behavioral wellness, you guys. Decompression walks, enrichment exercises um, every single day. The, that is so, so important. I can't express it enough. So let's say you've done this. Let's say you're already in this mess. How do you repair it? Well, the first thing you have to do is stop trialing. So I always say, if you are drowning, you have to get out of the pool. That feels obvious. But that's the case when you're having a problem that shows up in agility trials and you continue to go to trials, that's you drowning and insisting on staying in the pool. You have to get out of the pool, learn how to swim, get back in, okay? So you gotta stop trialing. You need to get liberal and also very clear with your positive reinforcement. So bounce back up to when I was saying um, to teach reinforcement procedures. Teach those procedures. Put them into your training. Teach ring sustainable procedures, which is a new seminar. So just put a pin in that. Um, and examine your use of negative reinforcement. It is culturally how we're training agility so make sure that you are not in the camp of send the dog to fail and fail and fail and fail until they get it right that is not how we should be training dogs and then again you can repair all of this with behavioral wellness like i said so you need all of the above. Just starting to take your dog on decompression walks is not going to fix the fact that he flies into a tunnel any chance he gets and you have no control over it. But stop trialing, get very clear and very generous with your reinforcement. Examine your use of negative reinforcement because you are using it, myself included. We have to, we just have to stay mindful of it, you guys, because it's so easy to do. And then really get serious about that behavioral wellness. It's so, so important. So if your dog is a quote-unquote tunnel suck or um, he simply wants to drag you in the ring and then not listen to you and run the course or maybe he refuses to put his leash on at the end and wants to go back to the equipment, um, those are problems and those are fixable and also preventable problems. But you have to get out of the pool, get out of your comfort zone, and maybe learn some new things. Okay, some Patreon questions. If you want to submit your own questions, you should join us over at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. Lisa asks, I took your class Happy Crating and I am trying out your methods. I have also started a protocol for relaxation in the crate. 
What are your thoughts and did you try it? So first of all, Happy Crating is a webinar that I ran on Fenzy Dog Sports Academy. It is also a workshop that I run through the Fenzy Pet Professionals program, and it happens to be open for registration now um, for February 2020. So go check that out if you're interested. And Lisa, I think if you are, I think you're referring to Karen, Dr. Karen Overall's protocol for relaxation or relaxation protocol. And if you are referring to that, then sure, that might be an option for you. I personally have not utilized that protocol in crating, but anything that actually encourages true relaxation in the crate is something that I'm into. I'm not interested in training in the crate. I'm not interested in playing crate games. I'm not interested in teaching the dog that the crate is a working space. What I'm interested in is conditioning the dog to feel relaxed whenever they go in there and to just see it as a place to rest. So in the same sense that I see my own bed as a place to relax and rest, um, I want my dogs to look at their crate that way. And I think it's important that we shape that systematically and not necessarily with food or markers or things that get dogs really excited. So if you're interested in that process, again, go check it out. Um, you can register for it at FenzyDogSportsAcademy.com. Just go to the Pet Professionals tab, the Pet Professionals Workshops tab. And of course, if you can't find it, just shoot me an email. Next question comes from Bronwyn. She says, so my puppy's name is Hurricane and everyone keeps saying I'm asking for trouble with a name like that. What are your takes on that type of thinking? How could a name influence behavior? It's genetics and then all training after that, right? You're right, Bronwyn. It is all genetics and training. It's all environment plus conditioning. Your puppy's name is part of their environment though. So if you treat your puppy a different way because of its name, then certainly they might it might become a self-fulfilling prophecy. For me, I give my dogs names that I think are cute um, and catchy and unusual, and I don't really worry too much about what goes behind them. But I, you know, I do find that we attribute traits to them sometimes that have to do with their name, and it may or may not have anything to do with their actual behavior. I think Hurricane is a perfectly wonderful name, and I think your puppy will be wonderful and I don't think you should worry about it at all. And last, we've got a question from Nikki. One of my major wellness goals this year is finally instituting decompression walks. What has held me back so far are tick fears and concerns about the increased grooming needs for my dogs after a wilderness walk. Can you speak to any of that? She has a couple of questions, so I'll answer this one first. I live, I'm very lucky to live in an area that is almost free of ticks. There are very, very few ticks in the Pacific Northwest. So that's not a concern of mine. I did, however, spend a significant portion of time in Connecticut last spring and the ticks were literally, I could see them crawling across my friend's hiking boots um, anytime we went out. They were horrifying. They were everywhere. And I gotta say, if I lived in a tick-infested place, I... I don't know what would change for me. I think I might put bodysuits on my dogs. Um, I think I might spray them with DEET, even though DEET has its own implications of not goodness. Um, I, I gotta be honest, they do scare me. We have a dog in our household who has chronic joint inflammation from Lyme disease. It is a real fear. 
When I went to Connecticut, my dogs wore Sarasto collars as well as a topical preventative, and I checked them thoroughly for ticks every single day. And, you know, knock on wood, we were in the clear, and I think that's probably what I would do because my dogs need off-leash walks so much and I need them so much. As far as increased grooming needs, um, that's that can be real. My dogs tend not to, though. They have pretty wash-and-wear coats. If I had a breed that didn't have a wash and wear coat, again, I might go towards that bodysuit um, thought. You can kind of search for those. I'm actually not sure what they're called, but um, if you just search for dog bodysuit, um, you will you will find it. So that's something that you might think about. So she goes on to say, I try not to use a lot of chemicals on my dogs, but I'm concerned natural repellent won't be enough. Also, since I have a coated breed poodles who will likely need extra baths after hiking, is it likely the baths will be punishing over time? So you're really pointing out some of the things that I've already said. I would use the toxic chemicals on your dog. That's my personal and humble opinion is that um, the diseases that ticks carry are scarier to me than the chemical preventatives. So I go with the preventatives. Um, and yeah, if I had poodles and they were going to get disgusting, I would probably put them in a bodysuit or I would shave them really, really tight. And if you don't want to shave them really tight, then I would work really hard on bath time not being punishing. I would work really hard on your cooperative care and your grooming. And finally, Nikki asks, how long of a long line should newbies with unpredictable recall look for? How long is just too much trouble or too short to get the freedom benefit? Anything under 10 feet is too short. And... For me, anything over 20 feet is too long to handle. So I, truth be told, hate long lines. I love what they can give to people. And I love the freedom that they can afford. I hate handling them. They are a lot of work. So start with a 10 foot line, see how you feel. But truthfully, when people say, you know, what kind of long line do you use? I say recalls. <laughs> which is a jackass answer, but the truth, because I just work my butt off on recalls and my puppies pretty much drag a long line for a couple of months, maybe, if that, um, if they drag them at all. If I've got a puppy that's super keen on food and will follow my adults, then I don't use one ever. Felix wore one for longer than I wanted him to just because he was pretty enamored with the world, more so than he was with anything that I had. Um, but he doesn't wear one now unless it's kind of required by where we are. And they are they are a lot of trouble. So look into handling them. Tracking people um, are the best to ask for help on how to handle them. They really, because they have to handle a 40-foot line out there on the track. So those are some people to ask for help. And I just really appreciate everybody's questions. Again, you can submit your own questions if you join us on patreon.com slash cogdogradio. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.